Well, uh, my name is Dave Shrine. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. More specifically, I'm the pastor of college and young adults. I do uh, media communications, and I'm also uh, a pastor in our student union. Give a shout out for our high schoolers over here. What, what? You guys, there are some incredible things. God is doing some incredible things in our student ministries. If you have ever thought about playing a role, being a leader, uh, getting involved in students' lives, let me just tell you, now is the time. There's not a better time than this. God is doing some incredible things, and, uh, and I, I, would just, uh, I would just say, you don't know what you're missing out on. It's just, it's awesome to see uh, what is happening in the lives of our students. So, like I said, my name is Dave Shrine, and, uh, and I'm here to speak to you today about something that God has been doing in my life, something that he has been rising up inside of me, uh, an anthem, if you will, of, uh, of his grace. And, uh, and it actually uh, started, to, uh, started to snowball, uh, just kind of really understanding and really wanting to know his grace. It started to snowball a few weeks ago, um, and I'll share, uh, I'll share exactly what it was that kind of instigated it all. But when Alan asked me to talk, I said, oh, what would I say? If I've got one thing to talk about, what is it that I would say? And, uh, and I figured nothing better than to actually share uh, what God is doing in my heart. And I'm very excited to be able to share that because it just so happens to coincide with what we've been studying in our college and young adults group, 242. And so, shameless plug, our college and young adults group meets every first and third Thursdays of the month at 6.30 in the kids' up room down on the other side of, uh, other side of the church. If, you're, if you are between 18 and 26, roughly, whether you're married or single... Please come hang out with us. It's just, it's been so much fun to be able to experience community together with people who are walking and find themselves in the same place uh, of life. It's awesome. We want you to come and be a part, and we want to, uh, we want to share life together. Okay, end shameless plug. Um, well, not end. We're actually meeting this Thursday at 6.30, so, you know, jot it down. Yeah, what, what? Uh, anyways... So it comes directly from Colossians. We have been studying Colossians uh, for the past several months, and, uh, and we've been looking at <clears throat> this book that Paul wrote to a church, uh, basically, who was brand new. So if you want to open up your Bibles, Colossians 1, 20, uh, Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And I'm going to go ahead, and go, while you're opening that, I'm going to pray for our mo- morning here, and then we'll get to work. God, thank you so much for who you are what you've done, what you've accomplished on our behalf, that which we could not do for ourselves, Lord, you did for us. You did for us, so the truth that anyone who calls upon your name will be saved. That that is grace, that is love so divine. So divine that it deserves everything that we've got. Lord, I ask that this morning as we take a look at your word, that you would illuminate the scriptures, that you would bring them to life. God, that your spirit would penetrate even the hardest places of our hearts so that we would be able to understand more of who you are, get a better picture of what you call us to, Jesus, and live our lives in response to that. Thank you so much for this opportunity to gather as a body and to grow together as a family, as a family, as the body of Christ. We put you at the highest place this morning, Lord Jesus, and we just ask that your spirit would be here, would be present, and that we would, um, that we would experience uh, the very heart of God. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. So we're looking at Colossians uh, verse 1, 21 through 23. I'm going to go ahead and read it, and then we are going to dive. Oh, you know what? Before I do that, though, I want to give you, just catch you up real quick on where we are at in the book of Colossians, because it's important to know the context of what we're saying. Colossians is a book written to a brand new church in the Roman Empire. Basically, what happened is there's this city of Colossae, 
and they have never had anybody come and present the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. They have not experienced the message, the good news. There has not been, from all accounts, there has not been a disciple or an apostle that has gone there. And so what has happened here is that Paul was teaching in the city of Ephesus, presenting the gospel of Christ, and one of the members of the city of Colossae, Epaphras, he heard this message of grace. And so Epaphras said, this is incredible, this rocks my world. He became a missionary, went back to his hometown of Colossae and said, you guys got to hear this. You guys have got to hear this. You've got to experience what I have experienced. And so from this one man's account, a church rises up from this city that had previously been untouched by the gospel. And so this letter that we're now reading, Epaphras has returned to Paul, given him an account of what's going on in this new church, and Paul says, that's awesome. That's awesome. Here's the things that you need to take back to this church and say, this is it. Get these things. Understand them. This is the essence of what the gospel is. And where we pick up in verse 21, it is tagging probably one of the most beautiful passages in all of the New Testament describing who Jesus Christ is in very elegant terms. If you look, when you go home, I would encourage you to read verses 1, 15 through 20. It places Jesus high above all other gods. It says he is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the architect over all of creation. He's the one who God chose through him to create everything that we've seen. He has the highest authority and the highest power in this earth. He rules over everything that we can see and everything that we cannot see. Dominions are thrones. Jesus Christ is the highest God. And so he's, he's described to them this beautiful theology helping them understand who this God is, who this God is that came and died for them. And that is where we pick up in verse 21. So let's read together. After he describes Jesus, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So, so the thing that I love to set this whole thing up, the thing that I really think is valuable to point out in, this, in these three passages, very, very small passages, is that Paul articulates that this is the reality of who we were and now the reality of what we have become as a result of what Jesus has done. This is the entire gospel of grace wrapped up into three small verses. It's incredible. It's incredible, this story, especially the fact that he can put it all together and articulate it so well. If you look at, oops, if you look at verse 21, if you look at verse 21, you'll see it says, once you were alienated from God, alienated and as I tried to wrap some flesh around this as I was studying over the past couple weeks this is the example that I came up with now you might relate to this uh, you might relate to this exactly the way I have or maybe uh, maybe you can relate this to when you were in college or now a family situation or um, or even at work but alienated what does that look like for me I went straight back to high school I went straight and some of our high schoolers may know exactly you guys might relate directly to this but I went back to high school and I recall that there were people around the school that, for whatever reason, I wanted to be in relationship with them. There was something attractive about them. Whether it was good or whether, whether it was bad, there was something about this group or these groups of people that drew me in and I wanted to know them and I wanted them to know me. However, 
we all know that we don't always get what we want for whatever reason. There was a proverbial line drawn. And whether it was social, whether it was cultural, whether it was the way I dressed, whether it was the way I talked, whether it was what I chose to do or chose not to do, this line, I could not penetrate it. I could not cross it. There was a line, and if I chose to cross it, well, it's going to end up in a huge embarrassment for me because they didn't want me, and uh, they didn't want me, and, and I didn't understand what it took to be with them. So maybe you experience something similar to that, an isolation of some sort, where you feel alone, where you feel like you're the only one, and there is absolutely nothing that can pull you out of that pit that you're in. This is what I think he is talking about when he was alienated. You are completely shut off from God, completely shut off from God. No matter what you do, you cannot cross this line. You do not know God, and he does not know you in the sense that his spirit is not living inside you, and that intimate relationship that we talk so much about was not happening. He says, you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. I don't, think it, I don't think that takes much explanation. The things that happen inside of our minds, the evil thoughts that we think, the things that come into our hearts pushes us out to respond. And, and hopefully, when we come to know Jesus, those thoughts start to transform and we'll look later that God actually does transform them. But I think we can all agree that we know what we're talking about when it says you were enemies of God uh, because of the evil thoughts that transformed into behavior. Feel the weight of that. Feel the weight of that separation. Feel the weight of that loneliness. Some of you might even be feeling it here this morning, and if you're not, I would almost bet that every single one of us has sunk to a depth where we feel that there was absolutely nothing that could be done to bring us out of it. A complete feeling of isolation and utter despair. However, he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 22, so let's look at that. He says, but now he has reconciled you, but now he, God the Father, has reconciled you by Christ, God the Son, by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy, set apart, holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Guys, this, this is an incredible passage. Think of what we just talked about. Despair, hopelessness, sin, weighing us down, not, a, not feeling like we have a hope in the world to bring us out. But then he brings the hope and the light of the world into this saying, but you are now presented before a holy and perfect God without blemish. Free from accusation. There is not one thing that anyone in this world can come and say, God, have nothing to do with them because they have done this. He says that's completely wiped out. Feel the weight of redemption. This is a drastic, this is probably the, one of the most radical things that we could ever talk about in Scripture. This is one of the most radical things, the redemption that God has brought to us through the Son, Jesus Christ. There is nothing more radical than this in all of Scripture. This is the hope of the world. And then if you continue on in verse 23, he doesn't stop just saying, this is who you were, this is who you are, but he gives us instructions. He knows that we need them. He says, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel, and I love this last part, he brings assurance. He places with such authority assurance of the gospel. He says, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He's assuring them that what I have just said to you, you can hold on to it. You can believe it. It's a solid rock that will not move. It will not change. And this is important because in this day, in this time, there were people rising up from within this good gospel-centered teaching. There were people rising up, said, yes, Jesus, but also this. And it would be, you know, pray this way. Or they would say, yes, Jesus. And even Peter said, yes, Jesus, but circumcision. You have to have circumcision. But what Paul is saying here is saying, no, what I have just said, 
If anybody brings anything contrary to that, push it aside because it is not the true gospel. The true gospel is that Christ died and rose again so that you could be presented in front of a holy God without blemish and made clean. It's incredible. And so, that leads me to say that the weight of God's grace is always more than sufficient to cover the weight of our sin, no matter what we have done, no matter what those thoughts have been, no matter what those decisions that we have made, no matter what the behavior is that we have included ourselves in that the Bible describes as evil. There is a hope, and it says right here, it says that God will pull you out of it. The statement, the weight of God's grace is always more than sufficient to cover the weight of our sin. This is probably, this reality, when you come to know it and accept Jesus Christ, it is the most polarizing thing in the life of the Christian. The most polarizing thing. Your whole life gets turned 180 degrees. One second, you are standing as if you, any accusation could be brought up against you and it would stick. Yes, I have done that. Yes, I am those things. The worst things that you have ever done, that's your rap sheet. But when you accept Jesus Christ and you realize his saving grace for the first time, all of a sudden, those things are pushed away and you step into forgiveness... There's nothing more, pol more polarizing than that. In that instant, God takes all of the evil, all of the disgust, all of the wretchedness that is, lies in each of our hearts, puts it aside, and says, you are forgiven once and for all. And there is absolutely nothing that is going to take you away from me. The most polarizing thing in the entire Christian walk. When you realize, when you realize this, put yourself back into the point when you first came to know him. When you realize that this, what was your response then? What was your response then when you realized what had been done for you, what welled up inside of you? It wasn't just a moment, I would, I, would, I would bet for most of you, it wasn't just a moment that you said, I get it, I agree, and then you just went on. There was a change that happened, and you've probably said this statement at some point in time to some effect, uh, to some effect I don't know what happened, but something changed on that day. What was your response then? You know, when, uh, when I was growing up, there was a movie that I absolutely loved. It was my favorite movie. Some of you may know it. I wanted it so badly. It was out in the theater, and I saw it, and I was just, oh, I want to see it again, oh, and again, and again. I was probably 11 or 12 years old, and I told my parents, oh, it's out on tape. Please get it for me. Please get it for me. And my birthday rolled around, and I knew, kind of, you know that anxiousness. You know that it's coming, but is it really going to come? And you know that it's there. The, the package looks like that. But did they get it wrong? Did they get you something else? And, and so the day came, I ripped off. And there underneath the wrapping paper was a VHS cassette of the movie Hook. The movie Hook. Robin Williams, Julia Roberts, Dustin Hoffman. If you've seen it, then you can understand why I love it so much. It's an incredible movie. It's so much fun. And not only did I get the movie for my birthday, but I got the Hook sword. I got the Peter Pan sword. You pull it out, and you don't even have to hit anything. You just swing it and ching, ching, ching. It made all the noise and... Oh, to an 11-year-old boy, it was a happy day on that day. And I think me and my brothers, we all played with that sword. It wasn't really meant for the things that we were doing, and it broke, but, you know, life goes on, I guess. But either which way, loved it. Loved the movie. And so if you've seen the movie, you'll know this scene. You'll know the premise. What happens is Peter Pan, or Peter Banning is Robin Williams' character, Peter Banning has been away from Neverland for 20 or 30 years. And there's a saying that says when you leave Neverland, you forget Neverland. And so he has grown up, he's now a man, he's now actually a lawyer, and he has children. And he and his wife are out for a night, and Hook, the Captain Hook, comes down from Neverland, 
into his home, steals his children, and takes them, into, takes them back to Neverland. And Peter Banning comes home, and there's a note stabbed into the wall with a knife saying, if you want your kids back, you will come back and give me the battle that I desire. And so he's like, what? This is bizarre. I don't know what this is. Because remember, he's forgotten Neverland. So Tinker Bell comes back through a series of events. He gets taken back into Neverland. And the Lost Boys, and he doesn't, he, this, is, this is ridiculous. I'm not Peter Pan. I've never been Peter Pan. That's just a fairy tale. But the Lost Boys see something in him. They see something in him, and they say, you know what? You are Peter Pan. You're really old, but you are Peter Pan. And so they start training him. And this scene that we're about to take a look at, he has just trained an entire day. He is tired. They've worn him out. And he wants nothing more than to sit down, eat a good meal, and go to bed. And this is where we pick up. Bangarang. I love that scene. I love that. I love that look on his face at the end. You know, Peter comes to the table. He's tired. He's tired. He's worn out. He just wants to sleep. He just wants food. That's all that he's looking for. And we see there that the lids come off. The steam's there. The lids come off, and there's nothing there. The Lost Boys don't know anything different. They just start digging in, and they're eating. There's even a scene in there with a where the big one, he stacks a hamburger up and he just looks at Peter with big eyes and Peter's like, ow, and he just chomps down. And Peter wants so badly what these lost boys have. But he's refusing to accept the reality of where he is and the reality of who he is. He refuses to accept it. And so, as they're all eating and becoming satisfied, he is unsatisfied. He's not filled. That's what he wants, but he can't get past this fact. And then we see through the interaction with Rufio that something changes. And at first when I watched this clip, I said, oh, I don't know if that's going to work. It seems like he just becomes apathetic and so gives in. But I don't think that's it. Because I think if you, if you look closer and you watch his eyes, I think he comes to a point of saying, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to embrace it. I'm going to embrace it. I'm here. This is what's happening. I'm going to embrace it and I'm going to step into it. And I'm going to enjoy where I'm at. And he flicks it. And all of a sudden, what was now, what was a famine, turns into the most beautiful feast that he could have ever wanted. He says to Tinkerbell, he says, where's the real food? I want steak. I want eggs. I want a cup of coffee. When he steps in and he embraces the reality of where he is, of who he is, it becomes a feast grander than he could have ever imagined. You got the turkey legs, and we all love turkey legs. You got the cream things, and I don't even know what those cream pies were with the little dots on top of them, but I wanted that. As a kid, that's what I wanted. I wanted my mom to make it. I don't even care if it was just Cool Whip with dye in it. I wanted that inside of my belly, okay? All of this great stuff, and I love at the very end, the lost boy hands him the drink, and he says, drink your fofo, Peter, and he takes a sip, and he gets this coconut milk mustache, and he goes, how is it? <sighs> Banger everything that he could have ever wanted it to be. The movie goes on, and from that moment, he is transformed. He fully embraces the reality that he is Peter Pan. He is Peter Pan, and no matter how long he's been gone, that's who he is, and that's, who he, that's the life that he's going to live. He experienced transformation. In our lives, here it was an instance with Rufio that, that created that transition. But in our lives, God's grace is the means by which we will be transformed. It is not our religion. It is not our religion of praying. It's not our religion of trying to read enough scripture. 
It is not our religion of trying to do the right things. There is nothing more exhausting in this life than to not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, but try to figure, but try to live by all the rules. That will wear you out. That will make you a tired, tired person. It is not religion that will complete us. The Bible is very, very clear that there has been a lot of work done for us on our behalf. In Colossians 1.21, we read that we were alienated, separated, and isolated from God. But Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5, that we are now adopted sons and daughters of the living God. Paul says in Colossians 1.21, we were enemies in our minds of a holy and living God. But in Romans 12, 1 through 2, he says, God has given us renewed minds. Our minds are no longer what they were, degenerate. They are renewed and they are made clean. In Colossians 1, 21, he finishes by saying, evil behavior. But in Philippians 2, 12 through 8, Paul writes that we will come to shine like stars in the heaven, becoming reflections of a holy and living God who is good in all his ways, reflecting that to a world that is a very, very dark place and does not know him. This transformation happens. We see it in Scripture. But it's God's grace that does it, not us. Matt Chandler at the Village <clears throat> Church in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, he puts it this way. He's, he uses this example. He says, one morning I was getting ready for church and my son wakes up. My son wakes up. I'm in the kitchen getting my message prepared. And my son runs in, grabs a go-gurt, one of those things that, you know, you, you drink the yogurt goes back into the living room. And all of a sudden, a minute later, you see the kid kind of skip in, grab a cloth, and run back out. And he sits there, he says, you okay in there, buddy? Hey, yeah, fine. And so he walks in, and what has happened, and he, and he goes, what happened here? Well, when I was spinning, some of the yogurt fell out. And so he looked down, and what, the kid had, what his boy had done is he took the cloth and he started to try to clean it up, but all that had happened is that it just made the spot more and more dirty to where his mom was going to have to come in and, and, and clean that up and, and use some special stuff. And the kid wanted so badly to clean up his own mess that he just made a bigger one. And this is the way God's grace is. When we try to do it ourselves, we think, oh, if I just read a little bit more scripture. Oh, if I just do the right thing. Oh, if I just pray a little bit harder. We try to do it ourselves absent from God's grace. We are going to make a bigger and bigger and bigger mess. It's inevitable. We are messy people because our sin has, has damaged everything about us. Um, so God's grace covers the weight of our sin. But it is not exclusively meant to just save us. God's grace covers everything. Everything. And it's his grace. God's grace is the means by which we will experience transformation in our day-to-day -day lives. Yes, it happens in that moment we say yes to you, Jesus, and no to the ways of the world, no to our past. But his grace continues to show up day in and day out in so many different ways. His grace is the foundation upon which all other doctrines are based. Everything that we know, every theological, theological truth that we know about God is based upon his grace and his grace alone. If his grace did not exist, we could not experience his love for us. If his grace did not exist, we could not experience his kindness to us. If his grace did not exist, we could not his for experience his forgiveness of us. And if his grace did not exist, we would not be able to experience his spirit in us. His grace is the, the means by which all other truth 
is based upon. Mark Driscoll, in his book, Religion Saves, defines grace like this. Grace is God the Father, in love, doing good for ill-deserving sinners, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. Let me read that again. Let's let this sink in. Grace is God the Father, in love, doing good for ill-deserving sinners, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. You know, me personally, I am not naturally inclined to do some things that God has called me to do. I'm not naturally inclined to do it. There are struggles that I have in my life that, yes, you know what? One thing that I can get right is when I sing a song, when I sing praises to God, be it here or on my own, I can, I can think in my mind the reality of the words that I'm singing, and I get it. Or when I sit down and read God's word, I can focus in and have devotion to him. But there are things that he has called me to which I am not naturally inclined to do. And therein lies his common grace. He steps in, not just to save me from my sin, but to point me the direction of becoming more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. His grace is everywhere, and it covers everything. I need God's grace not to just convict me of my sin, but to cover it as well. I have deficiencies. I have faults. I'm married. You can ask my wife. I fall. I fail her. I fail my friends. I fail the church. I fail myself. If it was left to me, everything that I touch would be an utter failure at some, to some extent at some point in time. Sure, we can muster up some things on our own, but ultimately, we fail to some extent. I experienced God's grace for me in a very real way, and this is where this message kind of steamrolled from. I experienced God's grace in a very powerful way. A couple weeks ago, before Alan had even asked me to speak, a couple weeks ago I went to Chandler Mall. And I'm one of those types of people that when I go to a store, I have a certain expectation of customer service. I'm patient, but when it comes to customer service, my patience wears thin very, very quickly. And so I went with a buddy of mine, we went to a store, and I kid you not, within two hours at two completely different stores, I had probably some of the poorest customer service that I had ever experienced in my life. And I was mad. I was very, very frustrated. Because you see, in my mind, I had created a list, an arbitrary list, that when I walk into a store, if you want my business, if you want my money, if you want my time, if you want me to be here, you must do all of these things. You must live up to my expectations. And if you do not, then you don't receive my approval. You don't receive my business. It's almost as if I'm standing over them saying, with my foot on their neck, saying, be these things or I will shun you from my life. Now, obviously, there's something to be said for customer service. However, the context in which I'm saying right here is how do we reflect God in our day-to-day -day lives? I held up a list, and it came to me, and so, and so I got in the face of this guy. I got in the face of one of the guys, and I, and I can't believe I actually said this. I ended the conversation by saying to him this. You're wrong. I'm right. You need to figure out why I'm right and make a change. The things that comes out of our mouths, golly. And I walked away from there saying to myself, that was good, that was a good point. He's going to learn his lesson. He's going he's to walk away feeling bad about this. And, you, and, and I kept going. And you know, if you've ever had a confrontation like this, you know how it goes. You keep playing it over and over in your mind. What did I actually say? Oh, yeah, that was a good point. Oh, man, I, that sounded stupid. Oh, yeah, he, yeah he, he got what I was saying. You play it over and over in your mind. And as I did, God convicted me. He convicted me of my sin. And he said, you know what? 
You were standing over them, holding your foot to their neck with some arbitrary list. If God was there standing over us with his foot on our neck with a list that says, until you accomplish all these things, until you do these things, we're not going to be together. And the reality is, is we cannot, I said it, we cannot live up to his expectations. We cannot live up to his holiness. So what he does is he doesn't stand over us like this. But he says, you know what? Forget the list. Just come to me as you are. Just come to me as you are. Experience the fullness of my grace. And as a result, you can step out into the world and you can show others the grace that I have shown you. The list of the rap sheet that I have put together before God is endless. And the sins that I have committed against him are so extreme that it required his son coming down to this earth, dying upon the cross, to wipe them all away. And here I want to hold up a list in front of a guy at a store who didn't see things my way. Where do you see traces of God's grace, opportunities to step into it? Where do you see it in your life? How do you see it show up? And when you do see it, how do you respond? And when it comes to show up again, how will you respond? What does it mean for you to see the weight of your sin and the power of God's grace? How do you respond to that? I would encourage you to leave thinking about that today. Thinking about how do I see God's grace in my life? But before you do, I'll just give you a few things that I thought of. God's grace is revealed to us every single day through community, friendships, sitting down and sharing a meal with another person. That's probably one of my most favorite and rewarding things to do in this life. Laughter, memories, experiencing experiencing the fondness of a memory that you shared with another person who cared for you and you cared for them. Revelation, understanding the mysteries of God inside of our hearts. Forgiveness, the power of what it is to forgive another person and to receive forgiveness upon your own life. Restoration, understanding truth. It shows up all over the place. It shows up all over the place. When you realize God's grace, when you see it and begin to see it for what it really is, you want it. You want it more, you want it more, you want it more, you want it more. You want to experience him in the fullness of who he is. You want it all. Everything that he has to offer. To where at the end you can just sit in his arms and say, banger. 